Welcome to episode eight of Agents of Everything. We're gonna be looking at relationships that create or the power that lies inside of how we relate to things, how we meet things versus falling for the illusion that things have pure essences, that things are what they are in and of themselves, and that our relationship with those things is merely dictated by their essence and our essence and how those things come together, right? very passive view of relationship. Now, a lot of people live in and from this passive view of relationship. The relationship just is as it is, right? They live inside of this in the most important relationships of their lives. So you'll hear people who are going to marriage counseling saying things like, well, this relationship just isn't working. And when they go to discuss the nature of their relationship, the two people will start to point at the other person and say, well, you do this and you do that. And they're thinking the problem with the relationship lies in something of the essence or the behavior of the other person, right? It's in the thing, the other person. It's inherent in them, not in the way the individual meets the other in mind, in heart, in mind, in being. Now, I'm not talking in this episode specifically about relationships with other people. That's just one example. I'm talking about relationships with every thing. Everything. You see, we, particularly in the modern Western world, have a tendency to look at the world as a collection of things. Some of them dead things, right? Inanimate things, objects. Some of them living things, animate things, people, creatures, life, this kind of thing. But we thingify stuff and we believe that the relationship that we have with things and things have with each other is just emergent from the nature of those things right? I'm going to suggest here that we have a lot of power in how we meet those things. A lot of the power we experience is created by us in our relating to other things, other people, rather than in some relationship that exists as a result of factors outside of our influence. Now, why am I making this episode right now? I'm making it in part because yesterday I recorded the episode on the eye that chooses. And this morning I got up and I picked a book out of my bookshelf. It's a book I haven't read for a long time. But when I did read this book, it had a huge, huge impact on me. It is the book Stop Thinking, Start Living by Richard Carlson. Now, Richard Carlson, just to give a brief introduction, he is most famous as the author of the book Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. That's his most famous book. I found that a very disappointing book, but I absolutely love this book, Stop Thinking, Start Living. His other book, You Can Be Happy No Matter What, and also one he wrote with a guy called Roger Bailey. I think it was called Slowing Down to the Speed of Life. These were all excellent books, and I really like Richard Carlson, and his writing delivered a lot of mind shifts for me. So I picked this up this morning, picked it out of the bookshelf. Who knows why? Who knows what forces guided my hand to it? And I was reading the first chapter here on possibilities. There's a line here, a little paragraph here. It says, the way to get the most out of this book is to approach it with the understanding that it is possible to learn to be happy without changing anything in your life except your relationship to your own thinking. Now, the reason this line is important is because Obviously, Richard Carlson's criteria here is happiness. Some people might say, well, 
you know, life isn't just about being happy. It's about making things happen. It's about being a, a valuable contributor to society or whatever it might be. Okay. All valid points. But I think that most people would agree that while we're here on this planet, it's probably not a bad thing to have a fair chunk of happiness and fulfillment running along in the background, alongside all of the other good things that we might choose to do. Okay, but this is a primary criteria here for Richard Carlson. But the point that he's making here is that we can be happy without changing anything in our life, anything in our life, except our relationship to our own thinking, right? And it is our thinking, this is interesting, because it is our thinking that creates our relationship to everything else. So he's talking about changing your relationship with the thing that creates your relationship with everything else, which is your thinking, right? So we change our thinking about our thinking. Now, I just want to emphasize that this is a really important point that Richard Carlson's making because so many people believe that their happiness, their well-being, these kinds of things are dependent upon their circumstances, the things they have, the things that are happening in their life. But we see so many people, we can find so many examples of people who solve various financial problems, sort other states of affairs out, make new friends, move to a better, nicer house, whatever. And their general level of happiness remains the same. There's somebody in my extended family who is a determined pessimist and warrior. And they don't have a bad life. They don't have debts. They don't have anything really troubling, but they will find troubling things. They will create troubling relationships with things. Okay, so often people who are happy are people who have certain habits of mind, certain habits of relating to themselves and to the world around them. Relating, not relationship, relating. That's an active verb. And people who are unhappy also have habitual ways of relating to the world around them. Okay, now I'm going to suggest right now that our relationship with things or our relating to things not only transforms our experience of those things, but also transforms our ability to work with them and create with them. And this is a really important thing. It's a shift in mind. It is a mind shift from looking at the world as a bunch of things either animate or inanimate, that we interact with, to seeing the world as a collection of relationships which are actually created by us, created by our attitude, our outlook, our sense-making, and this kind of thing. Now, I want to just highlight inside of this some of the implications of this and why this is such an important thing. Much of the time when I'm doing change work with people, they're really clear about the thing they want to change, right? Even if that thing is a process, they will want to thingify it. So let's take a really simple example. Let's say somebody comes in and they say, uh, I have this anxiety that's just following me everywhere I go or something like that. I've never had anyone say specifically that, but let's just take that as an example. And they're absolutely sure they're thingifying the anxiety for a start. They're seeing it as a thing. It's a dynamic process. It's a happening. It's not really a thing, but they're making it into a thing with their mind. And this is the first step of creating a particular type of relationship with it. 
And the next thing they do is they say, not only is it a thing, it's a bad thing. They've decided all of this. And it is a thing that I must get rid of. It is the cause of problems for me. Right? So it must be got rid of. I must push it away. It is an enemy. I must be free of it. I must remove it. And I've come to see this person to remove it. Now, what they've got here is they have not only created this thing as a thing, but they've created their entire relationship with it. And it's very unlikely that that relationship they've created contains within it any potential to change it. Now, I'll tell you why I make this assertion. We human beings, we have a powerful, adaptive, generative intelligence within us that's able to solve all manner of problems when we've got the right kind of take on the problem. When we've got a sense that allows it, if it's a solvable problem, we'll solve it. So most of the time, we either solve problems reasonably quickly, or if they're perpetuating, it's a good sign that we've got stuck in how we are holding that quote-unquote problem, how we are creating it through our relating to quote-unquote it. It's not even an it until we make it an it a lot of the time, right? Any quote-unquote problem is just a whole bunch of complexity coming together, and it becomes a problem when we decide it's a problem for us, when we decide it's a barrier to something we want or it's pushing us into something we don't want. So people come in, and it's really common sense stuff. Obviously, they're going to think this. I'm not trying to look down on anybody. It's just such an obvious way to relate to the world. It's such a natural human way to relate to the world. But it often is the barrier to people getting what they want. They're holding on to something in a particular way as a barrier to them getting what they want. So I often do this bit of business with people. And this is a visual thing, so you won't be able to see me do this right now. But you can imagine me doing this. I'll often pick up my phone and I say, you know, you've got this problem. And I look at the phone and I say, and right now you're holding it in a very particular way, in a very tight grip. And as I do this, I grip onto my phone and I sort of pantomime the tension. And I say, the problem is this, all the time you're holding it in this way, in this tight grip, you can't really do anything with it. So for example, this phone, if I want to do something useful with this, the first thing I have to do is soften and loosen my grip so that I can actually use my fingers differently. I can actually open up the apps. I can actually start to play with it look at it in a variety of different ways. Now I have a chance of doing something useful with it. Now, what I'm looking to communicate to this person is that there's something in the way that they're relating to their issue right now that is stopping them from making the progress they want to make. I'm looking to help them change their relationship. This is something people are often very reluctant to do because they are falling for, I've talked about this before, the idea that how I see it is how it is and what I see is all there is right? They go, how I see it is how it is. I have anxiety. That's a fact. I cannot be happy while I have anxiety. I cannot function well while I have anxiety. That is a fact. So therefore, in order to get what I want, anxiety must go. That is a fact. All of these things are considered to be facts. They're held on too tightly. That's what I call cherished truths. So why do we need to loosen our grip? Why do we need to change how we relate? Why is changing how we relate the route to power, rather than the route to defeat, which is what most people think. They think it's the route to defeat. So if you permit me to do so, I'm going to get a little esoteric 
for a time here. And I'm going to reference my favorite tarot deck, the Tarot de Marseille. Now, I just want to say, when it comes to tarot, I don't see the tarot as a fortune-telling device. I see the tarot as a teacher, as a tool for reflection, a tool for facilitating perspective-taking, a tool for shifting consciousness and opening minds. You might say, well, how can that be? Tarot, it's just a set of cards, right? Set of cards, set of images. Well, that's absolutely true, of course, but what is it those images represent? I particularly like the Tarot de Marseille because this is a very old tarot. It's a very old medieval tarot before the sort of New Age people got their hands on it. With the major arcana of the tarot, the trumps, if you like, there are 21 or 22 if you include the unnumbered one, which is the fool. And they can be seen to represent a procession, a journey. The fool, the unnumbered one, if you start with the fool, the fool is an idiot. The fool knows nothing, is un wise, but it's also an open vessel that represents pure potential. The fool is willing to explore, to blunder into new territories, to find out and admit their foolishness. We have to have the beginner's mind to begin. And the final card of the run is the world, the everything, the all. It is the realization of everything. And there's a whole journey there. And there's a way you can look at this, that the three lines, if you go 21, if you take the fool out and you look at three lines of seven, the first line is about the attainment of material success. It's about mastering the material world, right? the political world, the everyday life, the life world. The second line is the psychological. It's turning in. It's looking at one's own mind, one's own being. And the third line, you could say, is the spiritual. It's opening up to the greater relationship with all things. So I want to focus in on three cards, particularly here from that middle line the psychological mastery line. And they are card numbers 12, 13, and 14. Now, card number 12 is Le Pendu, the hanged man. And if we look at the image of this, you can get this probably on the internet somewhere, you'll see a man hung upside down by one foot by a rope. There's a frame around him. The two sides are some trees that have been pruned of their branches, and there's a bar across the top, and he's hanging by this rope from one foot. Also, he has his hands tied behind his back with ropes. Again, we can't see the ropes, but we can infer the ropes are there. So this is a man bound, upside down, robbed of his power, apparently by circumstances. Now, he could struggle, of course, and maybe he has struggled. But in the snapshot that we see, he has a passive face, an accepting face. He has ceased the struggle and he has surrendered to his circumstances. Now, for a lot of people, this would be horrifying. I'm hung upside down, I'm trapped, I'm stuck. And the answer is to surrender. Surely surrender means the end. And you know what? The very next card, Card 13, the unnamed arcana, the unnamed trump. Of course, it's unnamed, but we recognize it immediately. The skeletal figure, the scythe, the bits of hand and head and dismembered bodies and bones on the ground. We recognize this figure immediately as death, the reaper. And of course, we all fear the reaper in spite of what Blue Oyster Cult might advise. So what's going on here? We've got surrender and we've got death. 
This is awful, is it not? This is terrible, is it not? This is the end of us, is it not? Well, it's not, because this is only card 13, and our destination is card number 21. So what comes after death here? Well, there is a rebirth. There is temperance. This is what we're seeing. Card 14, temperance. Now, we think of temperance as being some sort of restraint, some sort of measure, some sort of control, but this is not the temperance of this card. If we look at this card, we see an angel, an angel with a particular body posture, suggestive of freedom, much more than restriction. Right? And the angel has wings, wings representing freedom, representing flight. And these wings are wings that have not shown up anywhere on any of the previous archetypes. These are new wings. And the angel also has two jars, one in each hand, and there is a strange and uncanny flow of water between these two jars that defies gravity. It is magical. So we see in these three cards, we see a surrender and then a death and then a rebirth of new flow, almost magical flow and new freedom. Okay, and this is sat there, not right in the middle of the run of 21, but close to. So why is death important here? Well, there's an old proverb. I encountered this in Chinese martial arts, particularly Taoist martial arts, which is this, in order to profit, you must invest in loss. So this death represents a loss. It represents a letting go. It represents a letting go of the old ideas, right? This is the hardest thing for people to do because they're so sure their old ideas are right. This is not the death of you. It's the liberation of you from the old ideas, the death of the old ideas. The old ideas created the old relationship. If there is to be a new relationship, one filled with more power and more possibility, then there must first be a death of the old. There must be a release of the cherished truths that have been held onto, that have been creating the relationship that was, and therefore keeping out the relationship that can be with whatever it is you are looking to meet and have power with or find your power with, right? Not power over, power with. So we see a transformation of relationship, and it comes through a surrender initially through a letting go. Now, a lot of people are terrified of this idea. They're terrified of the death. They're terrified of losing their old way of seeing things for a variety of different reasons. They're sure if something is bad and they stop struggling against it, well, it's going to run them straight over. It's going to take them out of existence. It's going to kill them. Right? So they resist and they struggle. They're so sure of it. And they cannot see that surrender or acceptance can be a pathway to a new relationship and more power to create in the world. It just seems so counterintuitive. If I stop struggling, then I'll definitely lose. But when we surrender, we're actually opening ourselves to the deeper nature of things. We open our mind and that expanded bandwidth can allow new ideas and new possibilities in. We can start to see things we didn't see before, connect to things that were missing for us before. It's so important to be able to create with something to accept the nature of it. I talked about this in the I That Chooses episode. If you want to create with clay, you must surrender to the nature of clay, accept the nature of clay, your ability to create with clay. For example, lies in how you relate to it, how you meet it. If you render that clay up in your mind, 
in such a way as to say, this is horrible. It's just a piece of dirt. It's just this nasty dirt. What can you do with this? You know, everybody else gets Lego. Everybody else gets Meccano. I get clay. I talked about that as the victim relationship. But if you go, okay, that isn't the truth of clay. That's just the way I'm holding it in my mind. That's the way I'm meeting it. That's the way I'm relating to it. So if I let go of that, if I let those ideas die, if I let those cherished truths go, what space does that open up? What possibility does that open up? I get to now feel that clay, be with that clay, explore with that clay, open myself to suggestions as to what I might be able to do with that clay. And then I can start to really bring its potential out to be of service to myself, to the people important to me in the world. I can create things with it now where I just couldn't before. Before I just had repulsion around it. It had power over me. Now I have power with it. Not absolute control, not absolute dominance, absolutely not. But I'm in my power to co-create with the clay because I yielded to its nature and I transform my relationship with it through my conceptions and my choices. We talked about that in the I That Chooses episode. So this is how we bring ourselves into power with things. And it's all about the change in relationship. The point that I want to make here is that we get so hung up in believing that the world is a world of things. And that those things have particular natures. And those particular natures are immutable. And it's those particular immutable natures that dictate our relationship with those things. In reality, the world is full of whatever is going on out there before we thingify it with our acts of perception and interpretation. The world is rich. The world is dynamic. There is no thing, quote unquote, in it that cannot be experienced in a variety of different ways. There are always better relationships available to us with everything. And it's only through being willing to let go of our old ways of relating and open ourselves to new ones that we can find new potential, new possibility, and new power to create with those very things that previously we may have hated, we may have wanted to get rid of. Even something like anxiety, what somebody might call, what somebody might label anxiety, something like that. It's a sense. It's a sensation. If I have that sense, if I have that sensation, if I'm able to get close to it, get my hands on it metaphorically, like I was going to explore it like some new clay, keeping an open mind. What can I learn from this about me, about my power in the face of it, about how I might be contributing to the creation of it and discover what are all the choices available to me within that circumstance that I have been labeling as anxiety. So there's a potential resource in that anxiety. There's a potential learning, there's a potential development in there. There's potential power in there for me. But in my avoidance of it, in my insistence that it is just bad and I must push it away, there's so much that I don't get to discover that can empower me further in a variety of different ways that have nothing to do with that anxiety and go beyond it entirely. Okay, so that's a little piece on the power of relationships and relating and how we can find power in choosing how we relate. It relates to ideas we've talked about before, sense-making, this kind of thing, but it's a different take on it. 
and uh, hopefully it's a useful take on it for you. If you have got something from this episode of Agents of Everything, I would love to have you rate and review this on whichever platform you listen to it on. If that's Apple, if that's Spotify, whatever it will be, please do uh, give it a rating if you've got value from this. If there are people you know that would love to know about Agents of Everything, let them know. And if you haven't subscribed yet on Substack, please do that. There's a comments discussion that goes on there. There's some chat features. There'll be some opportunities to engage further with me in future. It's a free subscription there at the moment, but your energy and your presence there is a support to this work because it keeps my fire lit. So please do engage there. Please do subscribe on Substack. And beyond all of this, I thoroughly look forward to when we next connect.